of the necessity of the humanity of Jesus. Why is it, why is it important that Jesus became fully human and shared in our humanity? So we're going we're gonna to be in John chapter 1, and uh, we'll focus in on verse 14. So I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll dive in. Our Father, we come to you this morning with joyful and grateful hearts. We thank you this morning for all that you are to us and for us. We thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you that you are a God of truth. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your power and for your patience. We thank you that you are a merciful God, and yet you are just. We thank you especially this season for the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, that you are not silent, that we can know you and that we can know who you are. Thank you, as the the writer of Hebrews tells us, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, you spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these, Father, in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son. We thank you that in ages past you have spoken in a multitude of ways, in visions and in dreams, in revelation and theophanies, through the prophets and in the scriptures. And we thank you that now, in these last days, you have revealed yourself to us, you have spoken to us by your eternal word, by the Son of God, whom... He goes on to say, whom you appointed the heir of all things, through whom you also created the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the radiance of the glory of God, and that you are the exact imprint of his nature, and that you uphold the universe by the word of your power. We praise you. And thank you. And we ask now that you would speak afresh through your spirit as we turn to his inspired word. And we ask that we would see your glory afresh. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. The story is once told of a, of a little boy who was looking up into the starry night sky. And he asked his mom a very simple question. He said, Mom, is God up there? Is God up there? And of course, she assured him that, that he was. And so the youngster then replied, well, wouldn't it be nice if he would just put, peek his head out a bit and just let us see him? You know, what the boy didn't quite get was that God has let us see him in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to guess what God is like. He's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus at the incarnation. And that's why the angel told Joseph, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus had to be fully human. We've seen in parts one and two of our sermon series. First of all, he had to be fully human in order to live for us. We saw last week that he had to be fully human in order to die for us. And this, this morning, as we dive into John chapter 1, verse 14, 
we'll see that Jesus had to be fully human in order to reveal who God is to us, in order to be Emmanuel, in order to be God with us so that we could know God. The British pastor, theologian, John Wesley, he was once described as being the best loved man in all of England. Uh, You'll see on the screen behind me, there's a monument both to he and his brother in Westminster Abbey. And apparently, as the story goes, his dying words, as he was on his deathbed, preparing to meet his Savior, his dying words, which are then inscribed on this monument, go this way. Apparently, he said with his last breaths, the best of it all, the best of it all is that God is, is with us. His brother Charles, who is lesser known than he, was a prolific hymn writer. In fact, you may have heard this little Christmas tune, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Well, his brother Charles, who is portrayed on the monument there, um, wrote that. And in that beautiful hymn that we sing around this time of year, he speaks of the incarnation of Jesus with beautiful sort of poetic language. He writes, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. See, Christianity is distinct from all other so-called religions for a multitude of reasons, one of which is that we don't have people sort of in our own wisdom or with our own enlightenment sort of pondering and coming up with who God is. In Christianity, we have God coming from heaven to earth to tell us who he is. This morning, I hope you have your Bibles open to John chapter 1, because we're going to focus sort of like a laser beam our efforts on one verse. We'll be taking a look at verse 18 at the end of our sermon, but we're going to focus our efforts on John chapter 1, verse 14, which John MacArthur calls the most concise biblical statement of the Incarnation. The most concise biblical statement of the Incarnation. Tommy Nelson calls verse 14 the pinnacle of all human thought. It falls in the opening paragraph of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 18, which is often called um, the prologue, sort of the introduction to this account of the life of Jesus Christ. And the professor up at Trinity Evangelical, D.A. Carson, summarizes the, the point, if you will, of the opening 18 verses in John's Gospel this way. He says, But supremely, the prologue summarizes how the Word, which was with God in the very beginning, came into the sphere, the sphere of time, history, tangibility. In other words, how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book, he writes, is nothing other than the expansion of that theme. In other words, what is the point of John's prologue? What is the point of John's gospel? What is the point of verse 14? Well, You could sum it up by saying that Jesus came to reveal God to us. And so as we take a look at verse 14, we'll sort of look at it in three movements. 
the first half of verse 14 shows us the picture of the incarnation. We see a, a portrait, this beautiful word uh, picture of the incarnation. The second half of the verse then, right in the middle, we'll see the, the, the product of the incarnation. And in other words, what was the result, the consequence of the incarnation? And then we'll close at the tail end of the verse with, uh, with the paradox of the incarnation, sort of asking the question, so what? What are we supposed to do with the reality, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the picture and the product and the paradox? So let's just begin by reading our verse once again, sort of focusing in on verse 14, and then we'll unpack it phrase by phrase. Once again, John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's begin with the picture of the incarnation. We'll take it line by line, phrase by phrase, as we begin with what I'll call the subject of the incarnation. What is uh, the, the, the incarnation all about? Who is, who is the subject of the incarnation? Who does the incarnating, if you will? Well, we see it at the very beginning of the verse in the three words, and the word. The verse begins with the beautiful picture of Jesus' incarnation, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And so the first question as we dive into our verse has to be this, who or what is this word, right? Who or what is this word? You may notice your Bible has it capitalized, which is the translator's way of saying uh, this is an important person, right? This is no ordinary word. So who is this word? Well, I hope you have your Bibles open to John because I, I want to direct your attention to verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So who is this word, the subject of the incarnation? Well, very quickly, we see just a few things about this word from John 1 through 3. Number one, we see that he existed when? In the beginning, right? Those words likely, hopefully, sound familiar to you, right? Because when you open your Bible in Genesis, you'll find those words, right? John echoes Genesis chapter 1, uh, the creation account, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. He tells us that Jesus already existed at the moment of creation because, friends, as the eternal God, he has always existed. Number two, we learn not only that he was in the beginning, but we learn as we continue in verse one that the word was with God. He was with God. This is a relational term. John tells us that Jesus, this word, was not only present the moment of creation, but he was in relationship with God. He was with God. Number three, verse one, we see that he was not only in the beginning, we see that not, not only was he with God, but that he himself was what? God. That he himself 
was God, meaning that Jesus as deity shares the divine nature with God the Father. As we look at verse 3, we see that Jesus is the agent of all creation. For all things were made through him. And so we go back to the beginning question. John asserts in verse 14, And the word, who is that word? He's the ever-existent word, the ever-present-with-the-Father word. He is the word who shares the same essence as the Father word. He is the creator of all things word. It is that word, the subject of the incarnation. It is that word, Jesus, that what? Well, we move from the subject of the incarnation to the substance of the incarnation. John writes, and the word became, you say it, what? Flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Simply put, he became human. Truly human. Fully human. Now, I just want to ponder what John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because John could have chosen different words. John could have said, and the word became man. He could have said that, and it would have been accurate. He could have said, the word took on a human body. And he could have said that, and it would have been accurate. But that's not what he says. He uses a word that is meant, I believe, to jar us. It's meant to jar us, to sort of wake wake us up with its bluntness, right? He says the word became what? Flesh. God the Son, the eternal Son, took on skin and bones and ligaments and muscle and blood and everything else that's associated with this body of ours. He took on our full human nature. Sin excluded. Pastor Stephen Cole comments on this little phrase, the word became flesh, and he says this. He says, John 1.14 is one of the most wonderful and yet unfathomable verses in the Bible. How can God, who is spirit, become human flesh? How can the eternal become temporal? How can the unchangeable God take on human, take on a human body subject to change? How can the immortal die as a substitute for our sins? How can the man Jesus, who John saw, also be the eternal creator of the universe? Unfathomable indeed. He says, but in spite of the incomprehensible mystery, it is what the Bible declares. And so in this picture of the incarnation, we, we see the subject of the incarnation is Jesus, the eternal word who is in the beginning, who is with God, who himself was God, who is the agent of all things. That word, well, we see the substance of the incarnation. It was that word who became flesh. Thirdly, we see the symbol of the incarnation. Here, as we continue in verse 14, John introduces what is the first of two Old Testament images. Old Testament 
pictures, symbols, if you will, to help us understand what was going on when Jesus became a man. We'll pick it up from the beginning. And the Word became flesh, and then John writes, and dwelt among us. The incarnation is further explained here by this Old Testament image, this picture. The, uh, the ESV here, which is translates, he, he, he dwelt among us, is literally, um, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled. Are you familiar with that term? If you are familiar with your Bible at all, if you've read through some of the Old Testament, then that word should ring true to you. The tabernacle. Oh, that's something that, that was in the Old Testament, right? The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It, of course, recalls the time of Israel's wilderness experience where God's presence, His, His dwelling, if you will, He chose to manifest his, his presence in this thing called the tabernacle, this sort of um, temporary, you could move it from place to place, dwelling of God. The tabernacle we see in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, was erected at God's command. God said, then, have them make a sanctuary for me. And here's the purpose. He says, and I will dwell that word ring a bell in the context of John chapter 1? And I will dwell among them. And so John, using this image of God dwelling, tabernacling among his people in the desert, he says, and the word became flesh, and he tabernacled. He dwelt among us. Interestingly enough, the tabernacle uh, was made in part of animal skins. In fact, the holy of holies were God's particular holiness. His, his presence dwelt, was, said to, was said to dwell in the holy of holies. It was made of animal skins. And so John, I think, says that God came in the person of Jesus to, to dwell amongst us once again, but not with the skin of animals, right? But with what kind of skin? With human skin. He came to dwell, tabernacle among us. And so we see in the first half of verse 14, the picture of the incarnation. But what then is the result of it? And so the eternal word added humanity to his divinity, and he tabernacled among us, he dwelt among us. And what was the consequence of that? What was the product of that. Well, we move from the picture of the incarnation to the product of the incarnation as we make our way further into verse 14. We'll just read it again. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what does John write? And we, and we have what? We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. And so we'll take then the last half of verse 14 and we'll take it phrase by phrase, line by line. What is the product of the incarnation? Well, the first phrase we see is that the product of the incarnation is what I'll call the seeing of glory. 
Because Jesus was made flesh, John could say, along with the other apostles and those that were there, to see Jesus with their own eyes and touch Him with their own hands. They could say, because the Word became flesh, because He dwelt among us, we have seen... And then He says something that's stupendous. He said, we have seen His glory... The seeing of glory. The product of the incarnation is that John and the other disciples, those that believed in Jesus when he was on earth, and in a different way, as we'll see momentarily, in a different way, we, even today, who believe in Jesus, we too can say, in a sense, that that we've seen his glory. What does John mean? Well, he continues with this little phrase, I think, to remind us, of, of the Old Testament tabernacle. Remember, he just introduced this image, right? That, that, that Jesus tabernacled among us. And so we have in mind the tabernacle and God dwelling amongst his people. Not only did God dwell amongst his people in the tabernacle, but what happened when it was completed? Well, we see in Exodus chapter 40 that God... Um, not only dwelt amongst his people, but God chose to physically manifest his glory. He physically manifested his glory in the tabernacle. And so Exodus 40, verse 34, we read this account. Then, after it was completed... Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And then we have this phrase, And the glory of the Lord, notice that that phrase there, The glory of the Lord, Yahweh, the glory of God, filled the tabernacle. Friends, does that sound familiar? It's what John is writing. He's alluding to it. Just as Israel saw the glory of God covering the tent of meeting. So John says that when they saw Jesus, they saw that same glory. They saw the glory of God. That same God they saw in the face of Jesus. In John's Gospel, we see that Jesus chiefly displays His glory through His miracles. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, you'll see that it's structured, for the most part, around seven miracles, which he calls signs. Signs that are meant to reveal the glory of Jesus. So, the first is found in John chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, remember the first miracle, water into wine. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His what, church? His glory. He revealed His glory there. And the disciples, as a result, did what? They believed in Him, right? They saw who He he was. They saw His glory. And as a result, they believed. But in in maybe a deeper sense, the glory of God in the person of Jesus was revealed at the cross. As we move on, when when Judas went out to betray Jesus, Jesus said these words. He says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And so because of the incarnation, believers in Jesus see the glory of God. But the question then becomes, where does that glory come from? Where Where does it come from? 
Well, let's just walk through the tail end of verse 14. The product of the incarnation is the seeing of glory. And we have seen his glory. What type of glory? Where where does it come from? Well, John answers as he shows us the source of that glory. He says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The term here translated by the ESV, which I'm using this morning, the only Son, glory as of the only Son, it means something like this, glory as of the one and only Son, glory as of the unique Son from the Father. Older translations uh, at one time once rendered this only begotten. You may be familiar with that phrase. Um, it's not the best translation, and so I didn't use it, right? That was sort of a, an older translation, and it wasn't using the best information. The translations like the ESV here or the NIV, which reads, um, glory as of the one and only Son. That is what this word in Greek means. It means, John is telling us, that Jesus is the only Son. He's the unique Son of God in a way that no one else is. It points us to the fact that he and he alone has this unique relationship with the Father as the eternal Son. He is God's Son in a unique way that no one else is or ever could be. And so he says, it's, it's, it's his glory. Glory as of the only Son who came from the Father. And so in the incarnation, the glory of God is seen in its source is Jesus himself. But what then is that glory like? How are we to understand that glory? Well, as we continue in verse 14, I think we see the substance of that glory. We, the product then of the incarnation is we, we see glory, and the source of that glory is, is said to be Jesus' glory, the, the unique Son from the Father. But what is the substance of the glory? Well, let's just, just keep reading. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the the only Son from the Father. And then John, once again, uses Old Testament imagery to help us understand what he is meaning. The substance of the glory of Jesus, I believe, is described in the phrase, full of grace and truth. I think his initial readers, in particular if they were, were Jewish Christians, I think they would have understood the illusion Almost immediately, because the illusion directs our attention back to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33 and 34, you may recall the event. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is so bold as to ask God, you remember what he asks him? Show me your, your glory, right? Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God essentially says, uh, if I do that, you'll be dead. That's what he says. No one can see my glory and live. But he says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by so that you can see my, my back, right? Metaphorically speaking. So God is going to show him something of his glory, but not, not his face, not his full glory. And so then in chapter 34, we see that God came down in a cloud and he proclaimed his name, his character, 
which is akin to his glory. Notice the link in that passage. Show me your glory. And what does God do? He reveals who he is to Moses. This is my name. This is my character. And he said this in part. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. And here's the phrase we're going to slow down on. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness. This is my glory, Moses. This is my character. This is who I am. I'm abounding in two things. Love and faithfulness. The first word in Hebrew is hesed, which it has been translated in a lot of different ways. It can mean God's loyal love. It oftentimes is translated God's mercy. Here, obviously, it's translated uh, 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 love, right? Abounding in love. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament, it's linked to the grace of God. And so he says, I'm abounding in love. I'm abounding in, in, in mercy. I'm abounding in, in grace. So what does John say about the, the glory of Jesus? He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace. Full of grace. The second word in Hebrew from this passage is imit which can mean truth, full of truth, or it can mean faithfulness. Truth or faithfulness. Truth. Ring a bell? The glory of Jesus, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So friends, do you see what John is doing here? It's incredible. He's saying that the glory of God revealed to Moses... In, in, in that account, that the glory of God revealed to Moses was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the person of Jesus. I believe that John further then explains what he means in verse 18. So if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, still, take a look at verse 18. This verse 18, I think, not only explains verse 14, but it sort of puts a nice bow, a nice ribbon on John's prologue. It summarizes, I think, all of what the first 18 verses of John's gospel is about. Verse 18, John concludes, he says, No one has ever seen God. Does that sort of ring an Old Testament bell? That's exactly what God told Moses in Exodus 33. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the side, at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He's made Him known. Stories told of two young boys, they were brothers, and they had recently moved into a new neighborhood. And uh, needless to say, they were mischievous. They were troublemakers. They got into things they shouldn't get, get into. And their mom and dad often had trouble controlling their behavior. And they were raising Cain all over this new community. And so the mom and dad had heard that there was a pastor in the, in the neighborhood who had a pretty good way with children. So they thought, we're going to take our boys to see, to see the pastor. And so uh, they did it one by one, and the youngest came in first, and so he sat in the pastor's office. The pastor sat him down, and he said very gently, very, very uh, humbly, um, Johnny, do you, where is God? Can you tell me where, where God's at? And he was going the direction of, hey, God, God is in heaven, and he knows all, and he sees all. Where, where is God? 
just as a blank stare. And so he asked him again. He raised his voice just a tad. Johnny, can, can you, where, where is God? The boy just, no response. And so he got a little sterner, demanded, where, where is God? It scared the little boy so much, he, he jumped out of the room and ran home and found his 10-year-old brother as quickly as he could. And he's, he said, come here, come here just a minute. And so they ran into the room and they shut the door. And the youngest one said this to the oldest. He said, boy, we're really in trouble now. God is missing. <laughs> and they think we did it. <laughs> where, where is God? John says, no one has ever seen God. The section ends with a powerful reminder that no one until that point had ever seen God, what I would say, unfiltered in his unveiled essence, his unmitigated glory. It would have been a death sentence, as God tells Moses. Yet John here says that Jesus, whom he calls, notice, notice the language. John says of Jesus, he calls him the only God. No one has ever seen God, yet, the only God, Jesus, who he describes as being at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom. It's, it, it was an idiom of the day to express an intimate relationship between parent and child and friend and friend. As a sidebar, you may recall that uh, at the Last Supper, they were reclining at the table, and John this very same John is said to be at the side of Jesus. Remember that? He was in his bosom. He was, he was close to him. Same word. Jesus is at the Father's side in an intimate relationship with God the Father. And then he says this, that that, that Jesus, that word, the only God, the one at the, the, the side of the Father, he, speaking of Jesus, has made him, speaking of God the Father, known. He has made him known. The word translated in Greek is exig. Let's see if I can get this right. Exig, exigasato. That's I, I butchered that. Forgive me, you New Testament scholars. Exigasato. Now you, that may sound like an English word that some of you may be familiar with. We speak oftentimes of. Uh, the term exegesis. Have you ever heard that word? If not, it's no big deal. But we use this word exegesis in in the church and in, and in Bible circle, circles because to, to exegesis is basically the process of explaining or interpreting the Bible. And so, in theory, in Sunday school classes uh, and every Sunday, I do exegesis. It's a fancy word. It simply means to explain something. It means to interpret something, to make something known. That's the word that, that John uses to speak of what Jesus does with or for God the Father. He's claiming that Jesus exegetes God for us. Or as one commentator says of Jesus, and I quote, He has portrayed, detailed, narrated, exegeted the very nature of God for the world. In other words, we see that Jesus has revealed God to us. Verse 18 is preparing the way for statements that Jesus will later make in the Gospel of John. For instance, this same one who John says that that he has made the Father known. Jesus says, for instance, in John 49, he said, whoever has seen me, do you know what he says? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's astounding. Jesus says, you want, you want to see God the Father? If you've seen me, 
you've seen the Father. I exegete the Father. I reveal God. So we'll close this morning as we prepare to end in song with the paradox of the incarnation. The irony, if you will, of this astounding incarnation that John describes in this whole prologue. The paradox, the irony, is that while many saw Jesus' glory, many people did not. Many people missed it. Let's go back in our Bibles, and we're going to read verses 10 and 11. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. What about this incarnation? What about this, this word? John says, we saw his glory, but not everyone did. Verse 10, John writes, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In these verses, we see that most people missed the glory of Jesus in his incarnation. And friends, many still do today. They did not recognize him for who he is and for who he was. They did not receive him as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their King. And friends, is that true today still? Absolutely. Still, people don't today. Why is that? Why do people not recognize him for who he is? Why do people not receive him in faith? There's many reasons, but I think we get a clear answer in 2 Corinthians 4. You can just follow on the screen behind me. Paul writes, and notice some of the imagery that he pulls. It's very similar to John's. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from doing what? What's what's the verb? Seeing, right? What does John say? We saw his glory. Paul says, Satan keeps people from seeing. What does he keep them from seeing? He keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel. Does that sound familiar, like what we've seen in John chapter 1, right? In him was life, right? And he was the the light of the world. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so why do people not recognize him? Why do they miss him? Why do they not see his glory? It's because their eyes... Are blind because there is a veil over their eyes. They don't see the light of the gospel. They don't see the glory of Jesus. But what about those who do? Let's take a look again in John chapter 1. There are those who do. Verses 12 and 13. John writes, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children but not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And so here we see in verses 12 through 13 that some people do see the glory of God. Some people do receive him. Some people do believe in his his name. And they have the right to become his children. There were and still are today those who do receive him. They do believe. Their eyes are open. They can see him for who he is and for what he's done. Why? Why can they see? Well, I think the answer given in these verses 
is simply that it is an act of God. It's an act of God. We are given eyes of faith to see it. Born of God. Again, Dr. D.A. Carson writes on this point. He says, but as John proceeds with his gospel, it becomes clearer and clearer that the glory of Christ displayed was not perceived by everyone. When he performs a miracle, a sign, he revealed his glory. But only his disciples put their faith in him. He, writes the, he, says, he says the miraculous sign was not itself unshielded glory. The eyes of faith were necessary to see the glory that was revealed by the sign. As the book progresses, the revelation of Jesus' glory is especially tied to Jesus' cross and the exaltation that ensues. He says, this, he says, and certainly only those who have faith see the glory of God in the word made flesh in events such as these. And so the question will close with as we prepare to pray and to sing about Emmanuel, God with us. This is the question. It's a simple one. Have you seen his glory? Have you seen the glory of Jesus? Do you have eyes of faith to see who he is and to respond by believing in his name, by receiving him? Jesus came to reveal God to us to show us his glory. The question is, have you seen it? Dan, would you come pray for us? And we'll prepare to close in song. Heavenly Father, what a mighty and amazing thing you've done to come down from your perfect place in heaven, to dwell among us with human flesh, and to be a part of us, Lord Father, you came down to show yourself so that we could see just a glimpse of what you were really like. Father, you came down from heaven to die for us. You died for a death that we could never repay. You took our place simply because you love us and you want us to spend eternity with you. Lord, it is an amazing thing. Your birth, your death, and your resurrection. Father, we thank you. For that gift, we look forward to seeing you again. And we thank you for this Christmas season that we can celebrate God with us.